Amen. All right, guys. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 21. Psalm 21, perhaps perhaps not the most usual Advent text, right? The theme of this, this week in Advent, the pink candle, is joy. And so that's what I want to talk about today from Psalm 21, the theme of joy. So Psalm 21, I'll ask you to please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. We're going to read together the first seven verses. This is God's holy word for us, his people. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed Forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your holy and mighty scriptures. And Lord, we ask now that especially you would send your Holy Spirit from heaven to do for us what only he can do. Bless and empower the preaching of your word. That by your spirit, you would open up this text for us and show us something about Jesus. Show us a glimpse of who he is. Give us a taste of of the joy he brings. Write your truth from this word upon our hearts. May this be an act of worship, both for me in preaching and for others in hearing. May we treasure your word, and through it may we treasure you more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we all know, Christmas is the season of joy. It's the most wonderful... Right, it's the season of joy. You'll be joyful, I'm not going to finish singing. (laughs) One of the reasons that Christmas is such a joyful season is obviously lots of things, but one of the big ones, right, is gifts. Giving gifts. 
And, you know, when you're young, this is, this is it. This is waking up on Christmas morning, there are the presents, this, wow. Overwhelming joy and excitement. And I'm sure if we went around, all of you could tell us stories of, of that Christmas when you got an amazing gift. Just, oh, Either it was something you asked for but weren't sure you were going to get when you were a kid or even when you were an adult. Or someone surprised you and you were like, how did you know I wanted this is amazing? Mind-blowing, amazing gift. I'm sure you could tell a story like that. And we also can tell stories about when we got a really terrible gift. <laughs> um, I have a story like that that I want to tell. Okay. So when my parents watch this. Hey, Mom, hey, Dad. This will be fun. So wait. So, so, now they didn't. Okay, let me explain. Um, way back, way back when I was a kid, um, we were at my grandma's house, grandma and grandpa's house, back in North Carolina, and and I was, you know, I was a little kid, so I'm, you know, I, it's my turn. We all go. To, I don't know how your family does it. We take turns at grandma's house. It's we start with the very youngest, and they open all their presents. And then you go to the next, and the next, and the next, and poor grandpa is asleep by the time we get to him on the edge of the couch. Okay, so this is way back. I was probably, I, I don't know if I was, my sister was born yet or not. Maybe she was. So I was either second or third for opening my presents. Well, I'm, just, you know, I'm ripping through them, and I'm not paying attention. I'm just, all right, this is my gift, this is my gift. They're all in piles, so I'm opening up the presents, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm like, oh, thanks. Next one, oh, thanks. And then I get to my last present, and I open it up. And it's this box, and I open the top of the box, and I pull it out, and it is this pink, silky gown. <laughs> and as a seven-year-old, or, you know, or whatever age I was, it was around then, I'm looking at this, and I know I'm supposed to be polite. Good job, Mom and Dad. I'm supposed to be polite, so I said, oh... Thanks. <laughs> well, the, the aunts and uncles are, are, are hysterical because they know that's not my present. I opened one of my aunt's presents <laughs> by mistake. So, so, you know, thankfully no one actually got me that, right? <laughs> thankfully no one, no one in my family is that twisted. At least they weren't back then. And so, oh my gosh, you know, this was, this was, it was, he was horrifying. I was like, what am I supposed to do with this, you know? And so, for, and I, I don't know this for a fact, but I think from then on, um, the tradition started to where we always say who it's from, who the gift is from before we open it, as a way of avoiding any of these situations in the future. So every present, if you start to open it before you tell who it's from, someone will stop you in our family and say, now who's it from? Some Santa, my mom still writes Santa on half of the presents, <laughs> and so you go from there. So that was a really, um, that was just a really horrifying experience that I'll never forget. And we all have stories about gifts that went wrong, gifts that went well. And you know, when we think about Christmas and we think about gifts, what we should do as, a, as we're giving our gifts to each other, what we should do is, is, is let that remind us to be like a little symbol of the great gifts that God has blessed us with for the year. But of course, the main gift that we receive 
we ought to be thinking about this. We think of God's wonderful gift when he gave us his son. Now that's almost become cliche, but it's cliche because it's true. It's true. The most wonderful thing God could give us is his son. And that gift on the first Christmas was intended for your joy. We actually read it, um, or Paul led us in reading it from our call to worship. Luke chapter 2, the angel says, fear not. He says to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The birth of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, is about lots of things. But one of the things it's mainly about is your joy. That's what God was giving us. A gift that was supposed to be like the most amazing, mind-blowing, incredible gift that you've ever received for Christmas. Something that's supposed to make your heart leap and your feet dance because you're so overwhelmed with the joy. That's what the gift of Christ is. And Christmas, the joy we feel in the other stuff we do is supposed to be a little pointer back to the joy we should feel in God. Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to go look at the reason, the reason that the gift of Jesus should give us joy. We, okay, Psalm, or, uh, Luke 2 says it's, it's good news of great joy. Jesus is supposed to give us joy. But Psalm 21 has some, has some interesting stuff to tell us about why the gift of Jesus should give us joy. So we're looking this week at the joy of Jesus. And not just the joy that Jesus himself has in his own heart, but the, Jesus, but the joy that Jesus himself is and the joy that he gives. Jesus is the most glorious and the most glad person who ever lived. You've never met a person who had more joy than Jesus. You never met a person who had more glory than Jesus. When people met this man, they could not stay the same. He was the dividing line. Those who encountered him were either for him or against him. And there wasn't really a middle ground. You followed him with all your heart or you joined the crowd that said crucify him. How could anyone meet the embodiment of pure joy and glory in Jesus and want to crucify him? What sense does that make? See, sin doesn't make any sense. It's irrational and illogical when we choose sin. We choose nonsense. We choose lies and deception that promise joy, that promise a better joy than that offered by Jesus. Sin doesn't make any sense at all because Jesus is the most glad and glorious and joyful person you've ever met. The gift Jesus has for us and the gift that God intended for you in giving Jesus to you 
is to let you share and participate with Jesus in his glory and in his gladness. To give you a taste of what it's like to know the joy that he has and that he is and that he gives. Christmas is supposed to remind us that we were made, you were created for a purpose, and part of that purpose is to share in the joy of Jesus. God made you so that he could make you as happy as you could possibly be forever in Jesus. And the whole gospel of salvation from sin and repentance and faith and deliverance from hell and no wrath and all that stuff, as glorious as it is, is just supposed to get all the obstacles out of the way so you can have the treasure of Jesus and know that joy that lasts forever and couldn't get any better. That's what Christmas should be pointing us towards. So, let's turn to Psalm 21 and explore why, why Jesus is so joyful and how he can share that joy with us. And we're going to look at three points. First, we're going to look at the glory of Jesus. Second, we're going to look at the gladness of Jesus. And then third, the gift of Jesus. So we start with the first, the glory of Jesus. Of Jesus. The book of Psalms is, the book of Psalms consists of lyrics, poems, songs. The word psalm means praises. So what you have in the book of Psalms is 150 lyrical poems and songs. And uh, these songs are the songs of Jesus. There's a wonderful devotional by Tim Keller called The Songs of Jesus. And it walks through how Jesus read and lived and loved the Psalms. It's a wonderful little devotional. The Songs of Jesus by Tim Keller. These are the songs of Jesus and they're also the songs about Jesus. You see, Jesus, this might be a shock to some people, Jesus wasn't a Christian. Right, Because to be a Christian means to, to follow Jesus. And he couldn't really follow himself. He was himself. Jesus was Jewish. And he started Christianity. So in a sense, yes, he's the first Christian. He founded Christianity. But he grew up Jewish. Till the day he died, he was Jewish. He's Jewish today. He became incarnate, and the flesh that he became was Jewish flesh. He grew up in a Jewish home, to Jewish mom. He was Jewish through and through. He had a fully Jewish upbringing. And as a Jew, he knew these Psalms deeply. They filled his mind and heart, and they shaped how he worshipped. They shaped his relationship with God. Jesus quoted the Psalms even when he hung on the cross. What came to his mind was different lines from the Psalms. When he said, my, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That didn't come out of nowhere. That's a quote 
from the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting scripture. He's quoting the Psalms from memory as he's dying. The Psalms so permeated and shaped him that they came out naturally from his heart and mind. So the Psalms are the book of Jesus, the songs of Jesus that he treasured and loved. But they're also about Jesus. You see, Jesus, in his incarnation, in his incarnation, he steps down from the realms of glory, and this, and he comes and he becomes man and human, and he gets down here with us. And this is called in theology the state of humiliation, where he empties himself of his glory and his regal appearance, steps aside from his throne, comes down here, and is born in a humble, lowly condition down here with us. This is called his state of humiliation. You start from glory, you have the state of humiliation, and then after his resurrection and ascension, he's exalted back up to where he was before. And this is called his state of exaltation. So the incarnation is this big loop the state of humiliation where he comes down all the way down to death on a cross and then the state of exaltation where he goes from the grave all the way back up above the highest heavens to sit at God's right hand. And in this state of humiliation and exaltation, he fulfills three different offices. He is our prophet who reveals God's word to us. He is our priest who gives his life as a sacrifice to save us from sin and who intercedes for us like a priest today at God's right hand. And he's also a king. He is the ruler of all things. And so in his state of humiliation and exaltation, he is prophet, he is priest, he is king. These are the biblical roles that Jesus fulfills. And I have a professor, had a professor in seminary, who wrote a book called The Messiah in the Psalms. And he, it's a wonderful book. And he takes this grid of exaltation, of humiliation, exaltation, prophet, priest, and king, all five points. And he uses that as a grid for interpreting the Psalms to see how they point to Jesus. And the Psalms can point to Jesus in all these different ways. They can talk about him as a priest in his humiliation, or as a priest in his exaltation, as a prophet in his humiliation and exaltation. Same thing with kingship. And so this is a wonderful way to sort of take a big, big theology of Jesus and lay it on the Psalms and say, okay, how do these point forward and prefigure and foreshadow Jesus in all these different ways? And it makes reading the Bible deep and thrilling and exciting. And this book... The Messiah and the Psalms would be a great way to let a professor who does this really well walk you through tons of Psalms and show how this works all over the place. These are Psalms, the songs of Jesus, but they're also about Jesus in all these different intricate ways. So, here's the point. Psalms, like Psalm 21, that are written about David, they point or prefigure or foreshadow in a prophetic way, the person and work of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at today. How do these point forward in a prophetic way to the life and experience, the person and work of Jesus for us in the Gospels?
So this is point one, Jesus in his glory, the glory of Jesus. Psalm 21 is about Jesus in his exaltation and in his glory. So what does it say about his glory? Well, there are two glories in this passage about Jesus. So let's start with verse 5. Verse 5 says, His glory is great. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestowed on him. Jesus is glorious because God saved him and exalted him. Now, maybe that first point is like, hold on a second. What do you mean God saved Jesus? Jesus wasn't lost. He didn't need to be saved. Jesus saves us. He didn't need to be saved. Maybe that's your first thought when you hear that. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. This is basically what Paul says in Philippians 2 that I referred to just a minute ago. That he became obedient even to death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. And so, what did Jesus get saved from? He got saved from death. He got saved from his grave. He was obedient all the way to the tomb. And he was dead. And God delivered him from death and raised him up. And that's why he has the name that's above every name. God has highly exalted him above the highest heaven. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you have bestowed on him. So, this salvation is described in verse 4. See what it says? He asked life of you or from you. And you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Jesus prayed that he would be raised from the dead. And this is why I said last week, the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus were ordained by God. He determined that in eternity past and it absolutely was going to happen no matter what. But the way it was going to happen is because God in His sovereignty so rules and reigns over the affairs of men and of the world that if He wants to accomplish something, normally the way He does it is He stirs up some of His people to start praying for that thing so that we get to participate with Him in His plans and purposes in the world. We're not irrelevant We're factored in. Your prayers are baked into the very process by which God fulfills His eternal purposes. And that fills your life and your prayer full of meaning and eternal significance. You're not an afterthought. You are part of the plan, Christian. And so Jesus, He knows that His resurrection's coming, but He also knows that He isn't an atheist and he believes in God and needs to trust in God and so he prays in the garden of Gethsemane he's saying look if there's any way any other way that sounds better than the cross and yet nevertheless I'm gonna do it your way no matter what you know over in the book of Hebrews in uh, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 we have this verse 
about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus prayed for his resurrection. And that's what gave him the confidence to believe that God would raise him up if he went through the cross. He's glorious because God heard his prayers and raised him up and gave him life and immortality. Jesus can never die again. And then he also gave Jesus exaltation. Verse 3, For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Jesus was raised up to the right hand of the Father where he was enthroned King of kings and Lord of lords. Back to the book of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. It says, We see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus was heard. He was raised. He was crowned. And this is his great glory. Jesus is the most glorious person you have ever met. The glory of Jesus is above all other glory. So that's why Jesus is glorious. Because he is the firstborn from the dead, crowned king emperor of the universe, never to die again. He is glorious. And now point to the gladness of Jesus. Why is Jesus the gladdest person who ever lived? And you might be thinking... Was he really? Because don't we sing songs that talk about how he's the man of sorrows? Man of sorrows, what a name. We read Isaiah 53 and it's like, you know, he was forsaken and cursed. And, uh, and it's like, how, how can he be the most joyful person, the gladdest person ever, when he went through all the horrors of being sinned against and the cross and... Uh, how is that possible? How do you put those two things together? And this is really, really key for our Christian lives, how we put these two things together. Yes, Jesus is the man of sorrows, but it is the joy and gladness that Jesus had that sustained him and enabled him to endure all that sorrow and suffering. How else was he able to bear it? How could he have survived it? How could he go through it? It's not because he cheated. He's like, ha ha, I'm secretly God. Ha <laughs> ha. As though he's not really like us. That he's just God in with skin. And that he didn't really have any humanity in there like us. No, he, he didn't cheat and rely on, on all of his deity to get through it. He got through it the way you and I have to get through our sorrow and our suffering. Jesus had a joy that was deeper, weightier, more thick, more real, more concrete, more firm and solid than anything else 
that the world could throw at him. And that is what got him through his sorrow and his suffering. And again, we see this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is filled with all these wonderful things about, about Jesus that is pulled from the Psalms. And he said, and the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus finish his race? In obedience and with faithfulness all the way to the finish line. All the way till he said it's finished and he breathed his last. How did he make it? How will you make it? To your last breath in obedience, in faithfulness. And not do like Judas in the end and deny Christ. Or be like Peter and forsake Christ. How do you make it through? Same way he did. For the joy that was set before him, he was able to endure. Psalm 21 fills in some of these details for us. Jesus is glad in Psalm 21 because of the glorious salvation that was promised to him. Part of that joy set before him was the salvation that he knew was his. Verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. Exultation is a form of rejoicing, celebrating. In your strength, O God, the king rejoices. In your salvation how greatly he exults, how overjoyed. He is. That's why Jesus is glad. The glorious salvation promised to him gave him joy. Second, in verse 2, Jesus is glad because God was his treasure and because God heard and answered his prayers. Verse 2, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You have given him his heart's desire. And one way to think about that is Jesus has a heart full of desires. He wants a lot of stuff from God. And then he asks God for it. And then God gives him what his heart wants. And that's one way to read it. And that's probably right. But there's another angle that we need to remember. Is that God didn't just give him the stuff Jesus wanted. What did Jesus want more than anything? He wanted God. God was his heart's desire. God put the desire for him in his heart. See, he's the son of God from all eternity. He said, my, my food and my drink is to do the will of him who sent me. I'd rather obey God than have my next meal if I had to pick. Obedience was the food he most craved and starved 
to have. He loved God. God was the supreme desire of his heart. And so the things that he asked from God was just more of him and more of everything else in relation to him. God was his treasure and God did answer his prayers. In the Gospel of John 11.42, Jesus says, as he's praying, he says, Father, I know that you always hear me. I know that you always hear me. He loved God. He knew God intimately in prayer. And he knew that his God, his Father, heard him in prayer. And this gave him such joy. Jesus is glad because of the salvation promised to him, verse 1. He's glad because God is his treasure and answers his prayers. And he has this special relationship with God, verse 2. And then third, he knew, Jesus is glad because he knew God's providence. He knew God's providence. And he walked in the favor of the Lord. This is verse 6. Psalm says, For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. In the Gospel of John 8.29, Jesus says, Father, I know that you are always with me. You don't just always hear me, but you're also always with me. He had this gladness that Even the cross couldn't take away because he knew God's promises. God was the treasure of his heart. He had this intimate relationship with God in prayer. He believed in God's sovereign power and control. And he walked in the fear of the Lord. He was in God's presence. He lived each day in the presence of God. He got up in the morning and he thought, Oh God, what can I do to be with you, to know you more, and to serve you perfectly today? And anything else, I don't want anything to do with it. Every step Jesus took was in surrender to the will of God. Fully. All of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's why he had this relationship with God that he did. And this is, was the source of his joy. Walking in surrender to Jesus isn't this kill joy where it's like, oh, what a burden. And oh, I guess I got to be a Christian today. And No, it's, it's, it's a joy to be a Christian. It's wonderful to obey God. The law of God is our delight. It was Jesus' delight. The gladness of Jesus is rooted in his relationship with the Father and the glorious hope of salvation and exaltation that was promised to him. In the Gospel of John, again, in John 17, 5, Jesus is praying to God, his Father, and he says this in prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world Existed. In his state of humiliation, he's praying to receive that great glory that was promised to him from all eternity. And because he knew that promise was sure, and because he knew his God deeply, he had the joy that sustained him all the way through the cross. And now this comes to our last point. The gift of Jesus We've seen the glory of Jesus. We've seen the gladness of Jesus. And we conclude now with the gift 
the gift of Jesus. And this last point is very simple. Jesus was sent for your joy. We're ending where we started. Jesus was sent, Christian, for your specific individual joy. Christianity is not a dour, sour, sad, long face religion. We can turn it into that very, very easily and often do. Christianity is a, is a faith that's supposed to just make you leap for joy from day to day. And to have a gladness that's so solid and so secure that even on the most, even when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it sustains you. That joy is untouched, unshaken. It weathers every storm. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever, as Martin Luther said. Jesus was sent for our joy, and his gift to you, Christian, is to let you share in the joy that he has, is to let you have some of that joy that he had, that perfect joy that lasts forever. He wants to let you participate with him in the glory and gladness that he has with his father. And that's the last verse we have here. Verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. And there's the key. The king trusts in the Lord. The king trusts in the Lord. Jesus trusted God. Jesus lived by faith. And so, by faith in him, we are united to Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, you are connected to him. His spirit is put into you. You are knit together, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. There is a marriage kind of union between the believer and Jesus. And everything he is and has becomes yours. And everything you have and are becomes his. And that means he takes all your sin and unworthiness and guilt and regret and shame and mistakes. And all of that mess that your enemy wants you to never forget. And think that God is going to hold over you forever. He takes all that away. He crucifies it. And buries it. And leaves it behind. And in return you get all of his righteousness. All of his mercy. All of his love. All of his grace. His inheritance. His promises. His relationship with his father. A place in the family. Eternity. It's yours. In him and in him alone. The only way you get it is by faith in Jesus. And in union with him, by faith alone, you are connected to his glory and his joy. So that what's true of Jesus, in verse 7, becomes true of you. For the Christian trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, the Christian shall not be moved. We know the love of the Most High because we know Jesus and we shall not be moved. In the Gospel of John, Jesus prays that His joy might be fulfilled in you. He prays that we will be with Him one day to see His glory. 
to be satisfied in him. And as Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who's at God's right hand? Jesus. And what is Jesus for you? Pleasures forevermore. He is the satisfaction of your soul's deepest longing. So Christian, this joy is for you. Christmas is supposed to point you to this, to drive you firmly and forever to your joyful and glorious Savior. This is the best gift God could ever give you. And when you go through your valley of the shadow of death, this is the only thing that will be solid. This is the only thing you can hope in. This is the only thing that will pull you through. This is the joy that will keep you. For the joy set before you, you can endure whatever this world throws at you. God loves you, and God wants to make you happy forever in Him. So stop looking at all these other little happinesses that lie and tell you we're better, we're better. Pick us over God, pick us over God. Jesus is a killjoy. You'll enjoy this better, you'll enjoy this better. Those voices are all around us. They're in us. They're around us. We need to hear one voice today. The voice that says, come to me, and I will give you joy. Perfect joy that lasts forever. Lift your eyes, Christian, and look to your Savior, who was born to be your king and your treasure forever. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just thank you so much for the power of your word. We thank you for the glory and gladness of Jesus. And we thank you for the promise that in him we can share in his joy. Lord, this is a world that is full of things that snatch our joys, that threaten our happiness, that tear away our contentment, that try to trick and deceive that try to destroy, that lies about who you are and, and tries to trick us and to think, has God really said? Does God really mean what he said? Is this really true? And we're filled with doubt and distraction. Lord, in this very busy and bustling season that is prone to distract, I pray that through all of the family fellowship and through the the Christmas parties and the giving of gifts and the receiving of gifts, that in the midst of it all, you would keep our hearts safe from the deceit of sin and that you would keep us pointed and focused on this great promise that in Christ we have joy, perfect joy that lasts forever. That through faith in Him we can taste that joy He had. We can know that relationship that He had with you. We can know what it's like to be a son or daughter of God the way Jesus knows that fatherly love you have. And just let that even now begin to flood our hearts and to make us more holy, more sensitive to sin, more on fire for you. Stir us up to know this joy and make us excited and thrilled to live in this joy, to take each step with our Savior and surrender to you. And not to think that the path of obedience is the path of drudgery and dread and Those are lies. Lord, give, give, satisfy us, Lord. Satisfy us with your presence. Make us more hungry for you. 
as we worship Jesus in this season, the source of our true joy. It's in his name we pray. Amen.